Uh, so I'll admit that this question is not a question that was asked when I asked the congregation, hey, ask questions. But I think it's important for us to visit what is communion because recently we went weekly. Um, I, we did like a 50-day trial. You guys remember that? Just kind of like, what would it be like to take uh, communion weekly? And I was kind of waiting for hate mail and didn't get any. And meanwhile, I do have some people that are like, why don't we take it weekly? And so, you know, we went through the process and I thought, you know what, I think it would be a good idea to address it. But before we talk about frequency, I think the better question to start with is what is it? Let's talk about what communion is. It's been debated and argued about. Uh, Christians find lots of things to argue about, right, uh, throughout history. So let's bring some clarity to it. Then I'll address the frequency issue and then let's get into actually taking it together. And I think we're actually going to have the kids come up. Uh, it's been arranged for the kids. So if your kids just suddenly rejoin you, uh, we don't, you know, normally they, they're down there for the rest of the service at this point. But I think it's important for them to, to witness this time and, and they'll sing that closing song with us as well. Let's, let's begin with one passage. This is the only passage I'll ask you to physically turn to. Some other verses will be up on the screen. Uh, but Matthew 26 it's probably the verse that I most commonly read, uh, this one and 1 Corinthians 11, when we uh, move through the process of taking the meal together. But let's look at this short paragraph together in 26 to 29. You remember, if you've been in Matthew recently at all, uh, that this is uh, the night that Jesus is betrayed. Judas already secured that betrayal, already went to the chief priest. Uh, so even before Judas joins this meal, he had already set up for Jesus to be arrested. Um, and he's, his betrayal has already been enacted, even though he's trying to play it off uh, like nothing has happened. Jesus calls him out, of course. And after calling him out, um, according to another gospel writer, it seems like after Jesus calls Judas out, Judas exits. Um, under satanic influence, and Jesus spends the rest of the supper with um, the other 11. Uh, but here we drop into verse 26. I'll read the whole paragraph, then we'll just take a, a step at a time. Now, as they were eating, Jesus and his disciples, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So let's start with that first phrase. Now, as they were eating, what were they eating? Okay, now, I don't understand why this is debated or why some people do not see a connection to the Passover here, the clear context is the Passover meal. Uh, we just saw that in the beginning of Matthew, uh, or uh, the, the middle portion of Matthew, just before this paragraph, where they are in the first day of unleavened bread in verse 17. You see that there. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a week long. It'd be, it'd, the kickoff was the Passover meal. Why would they eat unleavened bread? Well, back in uh, the original escape from Egypt, you remember that they were told to, to eat bread without leaven because when you make bread with leaven, you've got to wait for the yeast to cause the bread to rise. That's how you get that fluffy, airy bread. 
instead of the cracker like what we use, right? Uh, because they left with haste. They left Egypt with haste. Uh, you remember when Lot and his family escaped the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and they were told, run, leave, don't look back. Uh, Lot's wife looked back and she turned into a pillar of salt. It's, it's that same emphasis of a hasty escape, not looking back. And some of you remember in the wilderness, as soon as things got a little bit difficult, what did they want to do? Not just look back, they wanted to go back. At least in Egypt, I had this and that. What do you, well, you've brought us out here to die. I'd rather have my slave life. And so what it, the unleavened bread feast was communicating was a hasty, quick, decisive departure from slavery. And that still communicates to us through uh, the Passover. But that's what they're commemorating, celebrating. They're sitting down for the Passover meal. Uh, you see in verse 17... Uh, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And so they start getting ready for that meal. And it's at that meal that Jesus reinterprets the Passover meal into what we call communion today or the Lord's Supper. So you remember the Passover where the, the final plague, uh, the 10th plague that Egypt suffered, okay, was after three triplets of plagues, so there was three, then three, then three. If you read Exodus carefully, you see that it's nine, a set of nine with three threes, okay? And then the tenth one's different. And one of the ways the tenth plague was different, the killing of the firstborn children, was that even Israel will suffer this one unless there's a sacrifice, okay? All the other plagues, they were just protected from it. But for this one to be protected from, uh, a lamb uh, was to be killed by each family, the blood of that lamb would be put on the two doorposts and the lintel, that frame topper that supports the weight of the, the roof on top of the door. So one, two, three with the blood of the lamb. And if the house was covered with that blood, then the angel of death would pass over that house. That's why it's called Passover. Jesus is communicating in the meal that he is the lamb. Right? When you have faith in him, the death that belongs to us that is the wages of our sin passes us over so the clear context here is jesus at a passover meal reinterpreting a couple of the elements of the passover that point to him that point to the gospel uh, through jesus christ so the bread represents his broken body as he lays out in verse 26 now as they were eating that Passover meal, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, I, I don't think that a church is in error if they use leavened bread. I'm not saying if you're somewhere else and they use a big old Wonder Bread loaf or whatever, um, that, you know, they're wrong. Don't take communion. Uh, but even though it's not required, I think it's fitting unleavened bread is available to us as you study scripture you know what unleavened bread means what it reminds us of paul even uses it to talk about the absence of sin that's also fitting that jesus is the sinless sacrifice for us it also reminds us of our escape from bondage of spiritual uh, egypt and so I, I think that it makes sense i think it's fitting as long as it's available we use it and so if you wonder why it's cracker 
You know, why can't we get some garlic bread, you know? I do think it's meaningful. We don't use Twinkies and Coke, right? We don't use Bavarian pretzels and, you know, it, why? Because we're trying to stick with the imagery that we know from the Passover meal. And I think that's important for us to, to keep with. And as you look at this tray with broken pieces of, of bread in it, I think it's not for nothing that Jesus broke it because his body would be broken on our behalf. Um, and so every time I look into that tray and I see shattered pieces of bread, I'm reminded of his broken body. And I think that's helpful. I think that's helpful imagery for us. So the point that Jesus brings out in verse 26 is that this is his body. Now, historically, Rome, even Luther, took this too literally. It, it, to me, personally, it's almost comical how the early reformers fought over this. Uh, a lot of the reformers thought Luther just wasn't taking it too... He wanted to kind of you know, keep as much of the Roman Catholic stuff as we can. We don't have to overthrow everything. And a lot of the other guys were like, nah, man, it's not literally his body. So Roman Catholics believe to this day that when the priest says the blessing, even though it looks like bread and it looks like wine, we use juice, all right? Uh, it looks like it, but it actually is not it. It has become his actual flesh. You're eating the actual literal flesh of Jesus when you chew that bread. Even though it feels like bread, that's your senses tricking you. It's actually his body. Luther took it a little further, and he's like, well, it is still bread, but it's also flesh. Some people call it consubstantiation, con meaning together. It didn't transform into it and leaving the bread behind. It's still bread, but it's also still, still his body. Then other reformers are like, uh, Marty, <laughs> that's not, it's, when he says this is my body, he's saying it like when he says, I am the door. I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. Jesus wasn't a shepherd. What a liar. He, it's, an, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. I think the fear for some is if it's just a metaphor, it kind of deflates it and makes it less meaningful. But if it actually is his body, okay, there's this whole process. What do you do with the leftovers? You can't take Jesus' body and throw it in a bin. I mean, it, it gets weird. But the fact that it's a metaphor I don't think should lose meaning because metaphors are meaningful. The sign represents something significant. Uh, so I don't think it's, we're supposed to take it literally, but I also think that it's important for us to note that it's not just a sign. It's not like, eh, communion cracker, you know, it's not just a sign. It's meaningful and it's weighty. Let me take you to one verse. I think we have it for you here in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Listen to how Paul explains it. Yes, it's a sign. It's a symbol. But he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, no argument here that the, he's, he's talking about communion. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? You see that language? It seems... That Paul sees more than just an enactment, but an active participation, a real partaking of something deeper than a symbol. Okay, And Paul, actually, that's why he teaches them later on 
This matter is so weighty. If you've never heard this before, you might trip on this for a second. Paul teaches that communion is so weighty. He tells the Corinthians that when they take it unworthily, this is why some of them eat and drink judgment on themselves, why some of them have gotten sick, and why some of them have even died. You remember that in 1 Corinthians 11? Think about that. If it were just a symbol, that's eh, just a symbol, and not a special time, something different than the other elements of the church service, something different than your personal devotions at home. It's so weighty that if you take it in an unworthy manner, it could mean your life. That's, that's what Paul explains to the Corinthians. Now, I, I don't think that means uh, when you're sick, you should go, man, how did I take communion last week? Like this continual paranoia that maybe you're sick, maybe you're ill uh, because of how you took communion last week. But I don't think we should just write it off like it's just the same as any other thing we do in the Christian life. I don't think it's the same as any other thing we do in the Christian life. When Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 tells us we're participating in the blood of Christ, we're participating in the body of Christ in such a significant way that when we do it wrongly, we can run into some real trouble. So I think that we should view communion not as physically Christ's body and physically Christ's blood, but it represents something so weighty and significant that we treat it with reverence, that we treat it with reverence. Uh, it's not snack time. It's weightier than that. It calls to mind and to heart the gospel and Jesus allowing us to be passed over by judgment and experiencing life instead. That is weighty. So the primary point of connection here is that while Christ's enemies are going out and plotting his death, he communicates to them, to his disciples, uh, what his death means. The gospel writers tell us, all the gospel writers tell us this happened on the night Jesus was betrayed. When Paul reiterates the Lord's Supper to the Corinthians, he reminds them that this was the night that Jesus was betrayed. The betrayal and arrest parallel that plague of death that should be upon us all. And while that death was being plotted, he's telling the disciples, I'm taking the death for you. And so it's a somber moment. And during this betrayal, and leading up to his arrest and execution, Jesus teaches his disciples, he's the Passover lamb. Death is going to cover many through forgiveness. Look at verses 27 and 28 in Matthew 26. He explained the, the bread piece, and then verse 27, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So his blood being poured out accomplishes something but it doesn't accomplish something for everybody it accomplishes something for many who are the ones that it accomplishes something for the forgiven people it accomplishes forgiveness for those who repent and place their faith in jesus christ it's open to all but it, it's, it accomplishes forgiveness for many for those who are in they're at the family table that's important and so the forgiveness of sins is an emphasis that we place every time we approach 
the table. Every time we're taking the bread and taking the cup, we're thinking about forgiveness. You'll notice that I remind us, hey, we should confess and we should think of the ways in which we are unworthy, bring that before the Lord. But the reason why we do that is that through repentance, we experience forgiveness afresh and we're reminded of forgiveness. We don't leave here after taking communion like in a condemned spirit, but in a forgiven one. And so while it's somber, it's also glorious. While it's dark, it also uh, has the splendor of God's forgiveness and brings us out of darkness, brings us out of despair. It should be a hopeful time. It should be an encouraging time because we recognize that we are passed over in an effective way and that forgiveness is purchased for us through Christ. The other thing I want to point out from this verse is that communion, and this is so beautiful about it, communion celebrates the gospel in the past and the present and the future. It has a backward-looking, present-looking, and forward-looking aspect to it. And we don't always bring this out every time we take it, but it's there. The past, because it shows how God has now fulfilled the promise of deliverance in an ultimate way that was only foreshadowed in the past. It was never really about the Lamb. It was never really about Egypt. All of those things forecasted Jesus coming to really take care of it in a way that a lamb could never take care of it, right? And so the past is fulfilled in uh, Christ's body being broken and spilled out for us. Communion is a present focus because as disciples, we sit together to eat and drink this meal. We deal with our stuff. We deal with our sins. We examine ourselves. We unify. We lean into one another. We lean onto one another. And we praise God for his grace that continues to transform us even now. Even now. And it has a forward-looking aspect to it, the future. Because the meal, this meal, as significant and weighty as it is, it's a temporary meal. That is a preview of the final banquet feast that we will enjoy with our Savior in the future. Look at verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so this future aspect is an important part of what we do in communion. We're looking at the past. We're dealing with the present. We're here in the present, but we're also looking forward to the future, and that builds hope. So it is a time, again, of, of renewed hope. Uh, we'll put this up here for you, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Paul reminds the Corinthians of this aspect when he tells them, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, so it's, it's this proclamation of the Lord's death, past, and then looking to the future. We do that until he comes because he promised the disciples he will eat it and drink it new with them in his father's kingdom. So every time you take the meal, you're like, this is just a preview of that ultimate final meal that we will all enjoy. All Christians from all times and all places enjoying this banquet feast that Isaiah talked about and that John tells us in the book of Revelation. You get past all the dragons and seals and bowls. You get to that uh, marriage supper of the lamb, which is beautiful a beautiful scene. So kind of flying through this, but a lot of this we emphasize every time we take communion. But here's the point. Communion is a blessed ordinance, not an option, but an ordinance. Every Christian church throughout history that I know of believes that to be so. Uh, we have two ordinances, baptism and communion. 
And communion is a blessed ordinance for the church because it signifies the gospel of Jesus Christ in a special way. Why do I say in a special way? Because of all the reasons I just gave you. I think it, we actually participate in Christ in a special way when we have communion. This is why I fence it to say, if you're not a believer, this is not a time for you to partake. And if you're a believer, but you're struggling right now, this is a time to fess up, get things right with the Lord, because we approach it with reverence and holiness. We don't just snack on it. What's next in the service? See what I'm saying? It's weightier than that. It's important, but it's also glorious, and it builds up hope in the believer, and it communicates to outsiders of what they're missing out on. You can come to this table and you can come to this meal through faith and repentance. But it's a blessed ordinance for the church because it signifies the gospel of Jesus Christ in a special way. I deserve death, but I get eternal life. How? The Passover lamb. Jesus Christ takes that for me. I repent of my sin. I place my faith in Jesus Christ, and he carries me through all the way to the final marriage Supper. I hope that encourages your hearts or challenges you to think about whether you're ready for that feast. When we move through the book of Revelation in the beginning of the new year, the Lord should tarry. You will actually see two feasts. And one feast is the destruction of all those who oppose God. The other feast is the salvation of all those who are in Christ. You will be at one of those feasts. You want to be at the right one. At that time, the option is no longer available to you. It's available now to make sure you're at the right table. That's what communion is. Now, in terms of application, there are so many ways we could go with it, but what I want to do is talk about the issue of frequency. Why? Because for our church and for our purposes, we recently went to a weekly observance of communion. Now, when I got here 15 years ago, someone might correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure it was quarterly, four times a year. And I asked the elders, hey, would anybody object if we went once a month? And it was like, no, I think it's fine. And then we went once a month pretty much right away when I got here. And that's how it's been for almost 15 years is, is once a month. Now, my plan wasn't let's, let's get them once a month then I'll get them weekly, then before you know it, it'll be every day. You know, I, that wasn't, I wasn't trying to, it wasn't a scheme. I just thought, wow, quarterly is really infrequent. I think most people are kind of used to at least a monthly. Why not? Nobody resisted. I was like, okay, so, so let's do it. Over the years, people have approached, hey, how about we do it weekly? Why not weekly? And over time, I started realizing I don't really have good answers why we shouldn't do it weekly. But I started being compelled by various reasons as to why we might consider doing it weekly. Does that, does that make sense? So I'm not saying churches have to do it weekly or that church is messed up because then we were messed up for a long time, okay? And lots of churches are, even churches that I love and respect. But uh, sometimes we, we don't have to think in, just in categories of let's just do what, we're, what we have to do and that's it. We get to take communion weekly. And if, if I was a good preacher at all, what I was trying to do is convince you that that's what, it's a privilege to participate in the body of Christ. So I want to give you uh, several reasons why I think it makes sense or it's good for us to celebrate every week. 
okay, every week. I'm going to give you 11 reasons. Why 11? Because that's how many I came up with. It's not a magic number. You know, at first I thought 10, and then I was like, maybe I'll do 12. You know, I don't know, 12, kind of a biblical number. I have 11, I don't know. Uh, But we'll move through these pretty, pretty quickly. Some of these are appended to verses, but especially the first one, and I think the most important one. Even though the Bible doesn't give us an explicit command, you must take weekly. It's not an explicit command. I think it seems like weekly is the biblical pattern. What I mean is when you observe the churches in the New Testament, it seems like they took weekly. So it's not a command, but it seems like they were doing it. And to me, it seems like we would need good reasons to go, nah, it's better to do it monthly. But if it's not better to do it monthly, why reinvent things? Why not do things the way they did? Maybe you're unconvinced. Let's look at a couple passages real quick. We'll put these on the screen. The first one is Acts chapter 2. Two verses here, 42 and 46. Look at verse 42. Talking about the church, the disciples, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now think about how committed we are to three of the four. Every time we gather, there's got to be teaching. Right? Even even in our prayer meetings, somebody stands up and, and says a couple words, you know. But in the normal gathering of the church, what we would call the Sunday morning service, you have to have the teaching. It'd be completely bizarre if we weren't committed to fellowship. We don't greet another, one another on the way in. We leave and we're just, we're just straight to the car. You know, we're over here like, hey, have meals together, right? And a lot of us do, and we try to stoke that. We're committed to it because it's fellowship. It's our middle name for a reason. It's biblical, Christian fellowship church. So teaching and fellowship and could you imagine a church service with no prayers? We're just going to bang through the service, boom, 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 no praying. But we pray multiple times, right? We pray in the beginning. Lord, help us to start off. Before that, we have our pre-service prayer. You know, we pray for the sermon. We pray for the kids. We pray for the offering. We pray for the communion. We pray after. We close in prayer. There's prayers all over the place, and no one bats an eye. We would bat an eye if there weren't any prayers because that would be unbiblical. We're committed to teaching, fellowship, and prayer. Now, breaking of the bread, you've got two options. Either that just means they were committed to going to Chipotle every week. We just, we got to eat. We're committed to, well, who's not committed to eating? You'll die if you don't eat, right? But when you look at the phrase breaking of bread through scripture, it refers to communion. It seems like it's referring to this spiritual thing like fellowship, teaching, prayers, not just eating bread, not just having lunch, but the breaking of bread when Christ broke it, blessed it, broke it, and gave it and said, this is my body, that they're doing that together. Now look at verse 46. And day by day, attend, this is the same paragraph, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts. Uh, many see this as saying they, they were meeting in their homes daily. Daily. Some of us like communion once a week. How about communion daily? And when the church services were in homes, lots of churches have to meet in homes because of their situation. As you move through the book of Acts, they gathered on the Lord's day, but you see this breaking of bread that they're committed to, and they were doing it as often as they were able to do it. And Paul calls it the breaking of bread. Uh, you can look, we won't put this up there, 1 Corinthians ten sixteen. Paul refers to communion as the breaking of bread. I think that's what Luke is talking about here in Acts 2. Here's this other verse in Acts 20, verse 7. Check this out. On the first day of the week, that's Sunday, obviously, right? 
When we were gathered together to break bread, why were they gathered together? Of course they did other things. Was there teaching? Was there fellowship? Yes. But look at what is the centerpiece. On, on Sunday, you remember Sunday, when we gathered together to, to break bread? Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. You see how it seems like when they met for church, they had communion. It's not a command, but as we see the church described, we're like, huh, they had communion a lot. It definitely wasn't quarterly, and I don't think it was once a month. It seemed like when they met, they had the teaching, they had time for fellowship, they made sure there were prayers. Of course, later we see uh, Paul commanding churches to sing, so we make sure that they're singing. And communion is a core piece of what they were committed to uh, from the beginning. Let's look at one more, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty, When Paul is talking to the Corinthians and he's correcting them about taking communion wrongly, he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, see? When they come together, what do they do? They have the Lord's Supper. They're doing it wrong, so he's correcting them. But he, he knows that when they get together, that's what they're doing. It seems like when the Corinthian church got together, they had communion. As immature and crazy as the bunch was, they had communion when they came together. So reason number one, I think it's the biblical pattern. That's probably, I'll spend the most time on reason number one, but the others will be a little bit faster. First reason is it seems to be the biblical pattern. Second reason, it provides a built-in time of weekly congregational confession. For a long time, our church didn't have confession and assurance in the service. It's kind of a Reformed church thing. I get it. But it's a, it's a biblical thing to, to come together, confess together, to be reminded of our assurance. And then we're like, hey, let's do it once a month. Remember? Maybe you don't remember. I don't know. Once in a month, we would just pause and have a time of confession and assurance. And I thought, man, if we did communion every week, we would be able to do that every week. We wouldn't have to make it a separate part of the service. And I think it's important for us to reflect on what God has saved us from, be reminded of the assurance of God's complete and total sufficient forgiveness for your sins. Communion builds that into every service. So reason number two is a built-in time of weekly confession and assurance. Reason number three, it brings focus, it brings into focus our fellow brothers and sisters, prompting us to make wrongs right and reconcile with one another in order to take communion in good conscience. I'll say that again another way. Communion focuses us, forces us to focus on and examine ourselves in relation to one another. When you read 1 Corinthians 11, he emphasizes their relationships together. And the reason why the Corinthians were taking communion wrongly is because they're pushing each other out of the way to take it. Some of them got extra helpings and some of them got to an empty plate and didn't get to eat. And he's like, that's wrong. You guys are, you're, you guys are wrong there. That's why you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. So communion is not just a one-way relationship with me and God. It's us together, okay? And that is uh, hugely important. More than once in the past year, let me let you in a little window into pastoral ministry, but more than once in the past year, uh, the reality of upcoming communion when we were doing it quarterly, the reality of communion coming up this week urged reconciliation between brothers sooner than it would have otherwise. I remember one conversation I was having with one brother, and I was talking about how another brother in our church is having a hard time relationally 
with someone else, and this person was privy to the conversation. And the person I was talking to said, well, I hope they get that fixed soon because it's Communion Sunday this Sunday. What is that brother saying? You can't come and approach. I, I hate the brother next to me, but I'm going to partake. That is eating and drinking judgment on yourself. You don't want to approach the table like that. You, you, have a, you have an unreconciled beef with somebody else. And Scripture commands you, to, as far as it depends on you, to be at peace with other people. Now, some bridges can't be built. You try your best. But some of us, we're the ones that burned it. Or we're glad it's burned. And we hold a grudge or we're bitter with somebody else. And we're like, forget them. I'm taking communion for me. That's wrong. Now, what I'm saying is, why have that pressure applied once a month? Why not have that pressure applied every week? Every week, we're forced to not let the sun go down on our anger because we're going to approach a table. We're not just going to sing songs. We're going to stand up in front of everybody else, or today it's going to be brought out to you. And we're going to uh, bank on the fact that God has called us together as a family and as a body. And I think having communion apply a little bit of pressure, like, hey, are you good this week? Are you good? Are you going to kind of come in and out of church service? Communion is another way that's kind of like, hey, let's not allow that. Let's actually face our stuff and deal with it and not let things fester between brothers and sisters. After that happened a couple of times in our church, I just thought, man, wouldn't it be better to have communion be sort of that guardian watching over us, watching over our unity each week rather than punting it every four or five weeks. I think we want to invite that kind of thing. Number four, the above points, I think, mean that celebrating the Lord's Supper brings a greater weight to the service as a whole. And weekly observance means every Sunday is as weighty as the previous. We struggle with this, I think. We have Easter Sunday. Some churches are like, it's Mother's Day Sunday. Okay, well, every, day, every Sunday is, is Resurrection Day, okay? Every Sunday is Easter. I'm fine extra celebrating it once a year. But it's not like all, the rest of the year, eh, it's just a regular Sunday. This beefs up the weightiness of the service every Sunday instead of like, we have regular services, but this is Communion Sunday. We should actually go to this one. Okay. This, this, this makes each service as special as the previous and as special as the next. I think it's important. Number five is going to surprise you. Fifth reason why I think it's good to do communion weekly is because it becomes more routine. Now, what is the number one reason why we think maybe we shouldn't do it weekly? It's too routine, right? I'm actually saying that's a positive. Some would say, no, I think it would be too routine. What they mean is it would be too monotonous. It'll lose its meaning, etc. Okay? But I think routine is a good thing when the thing that's practiced is a great thing. Routine is a good thing when the thing that you're routinely doing is a great thing. We routinely talk about giving. Every Sunday we talk about giving. Every Sunday we do a call to worship. Every Sunday we have a sermon. Every Sunday we sing songs. You, Many of you routinely, daily even, I hope, have devotional times, right? You don't say, well, if I read and pray every day, it'll kind of lose its flavor. Now you might say, well, I get to read a different passage every day. That's okay. Sometimes we lead communion from Matthew 26. Sometimes we lead communion from the Gospel of Luke. Sometimes we lead communion from 1 Corinthians. Sometimes I emphasize forgiveness. Sometimes the, the emphasis lands on hope. Sometimes we pass it out to you. Most times you come on up and get it. 
right? Once in a while, it's after the sermon. So there are variations, but we don't do that with other elements. Oh, are you seriously going to get up there and pray for offering? We did that last week, right? Is he preaching again? Why can't we just play a movie? Like, he just, he preached. He preaches every stinking week, right? Maybe some of you do say that. I don't know. I, I haven't heard the complaint yet, but what I'm saying is these things don't become monotonous just because they're routine. Lots of routines are great, right? You don't say, well, I worked out yesterday. What's the point of working out today? It just it doesn't make sense in other categories where we deem something important. We do it frequently because it is important. And if we're participating in the body of Christ, that amazing privilege to take part of a spiritual exercise where on the negative side, you could experience judgment, but what is the positive side to that? You experience grace and mercy afresh. I think we want to be routine with the things that are excellent for us. Quickly, number six. Communion relieves the pastor and elders of the pressure to say everything about communion every time. You know, when we did it monthly, I was like, man, there's so much to say about communion. It's about forgiveness. It's about hope. It's about community. It's about forgiveness of one another. It's about the people that are sitting next to you. It's about the Passover. It's about looking forward. It's about the, mass, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Weekly, I get to emphasize one thing, and the next week emphasize the other thing, and you can just keep emphasizing all of these wonderful aspects, and I think that's helpful for us. Number seven, it's practical. But if someone is unable to attend the communion service, let's say they were sick or something happened, they were unable to attend, they would have to wait another month to partake. So if we have it monthly, imagine somebody is sick on communion Sunday. When can they have communion again? How long did they wait for communion? Two whole months. Something that Christ commanded us to do, and we see New Testament churches doing it weekly, and one of our members has to do it, miss it two whole months because they were sick on a Sunday. Then that Sunday they came back. They're volunteering at CFC Kids three months now. I didn't like doing that to some of our people, some of our volunteers. I thought, why, why not do it weekly? And so if you miss it, okay, you come back next week and we have communion again. Number seven, if someone is unable to... No, that was number seven. Okay, number eight. Number eight, communion is, is effective communion does something we touched on this already but it applies grace to us in a special way it enlivens hope by turning our attention to christ's return that unifies us by turning our attention to each other it renews our relationship with the lord through confession and assurance it provides a physical watchable witness of the gospel to unbelievers and even our children so there are real benefits to it actual benefits to it why not do it weekly number nine this allows other elders the opportunity to lead the time. Why do you, why, once in a while you'll see Aaron up here and I'm all off to the side. Why do we do that? I got tired that week? No. I'm not the only elder here. That's why. And to get our other guys up front for you to hear from them, for them to officiate something like that, I think it's important. We, we, have, we fence the table together. We shepherd this flock together as a group. And so doing it weekly allows a little bit of flexibility there with the rotation. I think that's important for them. I think it's important for the congregation as well. Two more quickly, number 10. On the logistical side, just speaking of logistics, does it really make the service that long? It, at first, I, I told Ben, I was like, maybe we just cut, do one less song. I, I don't know. It's like, well, let's try it without changing anything. And it's just a few minutes longer. And so logistically, 
we just have to buy a little bit more. You know, this, our volunteers are, are doing it weekly instead of monthly, but we can rotate that as well. And it's not a big ask, but there is a big benefit. There is a big benefit on it. Finally, uh, it provides a super clear gospel presentation every Sunday. I try to connect each sermon to Christ, but depending on the text, that may be more or less time in the sermon. But however much I do it in the sermon, there is a clear gospel present. You bring your unbelieving friend, your unbelieving spouse, your unbelieving kid. Somebody comes, they found us on the website, or who knows why they came here, and they don't know Christ. Will there be a clear gospel presentation for them to consider? There is if there's communion. Not only do they hear it, they see it. They get to watch us partake of something that pictures the gospel. I think that's weighty and eternally valuable. Let me conclude with this. We can talk about all kinds of other reasons, and it points to so many benefits, so many gospel realities and features that we could enumerate forever. Um, and so many more reasons why I, I think it's wise, I think it's helpful, I think it's edifying to take weekly. Um, but it seems to me that the reasons to do it less, the reasons to have it less often, seem to grow thinner and thinner and, and frankly, uncompelling. But the reasons to do it more often are glorious because it's a glorious thing. Just let's make it simple. Is communion awesome? Let's have it weekly. I mean, is it awesome? Now, if your answer is, eh, I urge you to go to Scripture and let Scripture reshape maybe your broken experiences from the past or that abusive church that you were from where hypocrites were leading the time. I don't know, whatever it is in your background that kind of taints it and messes it up for you, try to allow Scripture to reshape your vision of what communion is because it's a glorious thing. If the gospel is glorious and communion is a picture of the gospel, it's glorious. The answer is it awesome? The answer is yes, it is awesome. It's amazing. And there are no reasons to take it less frequently. There's good, compelling reasons to take it more frequently. The point, of course, is not the frequency but the quality and the sincerity of how we take communion together. Communion is a blessed ordinance for us, for the church, because it signifies the gospel of Christ in a special way.